Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. In the final episode of this series, we want to speak about our current reality or perhaps the reality of the recent past. Um, Corona or COVID, depending on where you live in the world, has brought suffering for so many of us, whether in actual deaths, illness, long COVID symptoms. Uh, for some, it was their first meeting with the utter unpredictability of life. And for others, it was a new challenge within an old frame that they were already familiar with. We wanted to speak about COVID through the prism of universal suffering. Uh, it bridges us between the Holocaust, which was universal suffering caused by man to each other, uh, to other kinds of suffering like natural disasters and plagues. Are they categorically different from other kinds of suffering? And can we, or dare we, make meaning out of them? You know, Tanya, in the beginning of, of this whole corona period, I remember thinking that it was the first time in the 13 years I had lived in this country that I was actually experiencing something even my minorly similar as my family was across the world. Uh, I have one sibling who's a 16-hour plane ride away and, and other family members that are 10 hours away. And I remember thinking that it was such a weird, it was such a weird moment. In a, in a very also awkward way, somewhat comforting that we were all experiencing something similar. But at that same moment that I was aware that we were experiencing something similar, also it was very clear to me that we were each experiencing it in a unique way. Uh, and I think we'll circle back to this point when we talk in general about uh, about suffering, that even though it's a universal idea, everybody experiences it very, very differently. And so it contributes to its, its sense that uh, it's a very lonely experience. And so how I experienced it here with, you know, my four children and having just literally given birth to a baby was obviously going to be very different than how my mother uh, experienced it in, in her life. Right, yourself, I think that idea of suffering being, you know, a perennial human um, circumstance, but at the same time that everyone suffers in a slightly different way and therefore it creates that sense of loneliness is something that all of us felt during COVID. I remember saying at the beginning how for the first time, maybe certainly since I've known, every single human being across the globe had experienced something similar in terms of some kind of adversity related to COVID. And yet all of us were experiencing it slightly differently. And I think in a sense, it's, it really relates to everything we've been speaking about over the last three episodes. I wanted to actually connect the last episodes with this current episode by opening with some ideas from Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg, Professor Yitz Greenberg. Um, he is just a bit of a background um, for those that don't know. Um, Rav Yitz Greenberg is a um, American theologian, uh, American rabbi. He was the rabbi of Riverdale community for many, many years, but he's also a very well-known American intellectual. He's known as one of the main post-Holocaust philosophers um, who dealt very, uh, in the 1970s and 1980s with Holocaust philosophy. And he's also a, a very, very well-known um, and loved teacher and activist. He was one of the founders and creators of the Washington Holocaust Memorial Museum and a whole variety of various educational institutions in America. Um, and I, I really felt that we, we didn't speak about him last week, Yosefa, um, when we spoke about post-Holocaust theologians. But I think the reason that I wanted to bring him this week is that there's a deep connection between the last episode where we dealt with the Holocaust and this episode where we're kind of trying or at least offering some responses to our current COVID situation. Um, so just to give a, a, a very, very brief summary of what he says. So Rav Yitz came from the Orthodox world. Um, he, wa he was a teacher in Yeshiva University for many years. Um, he was definitely um, a controversial figure at the time. Um, left of, you know, kind of left of orthodoxy, if we're going to look at it from a spectrum perspective. Um, and his response was definitely considered controversial, perhaps even radical, actually, at the time. Um, in the five decades since he wrote, he's definitely revised elements of it. And his upcoming magnum opus, which will come out, hopefully, <laughs> I pray very soon, called The Triumph of Life, revises some of 
the ideas that he um, first came out with immediately after um, the Holocaust or certainly two decades after the Holocaust. But I want to just touch on on one of these ideas, and, and that's the idea of the voluntary covenant. Um, Rav Yitz using Elie Wiesel and, and another um, another thinker, Gladstein, he talks about this idea that he asked the question, right, how, you know, if we have a covenantal relationship with God, how can the Holocaust, which seems to essentially be a suicide mission, God sent us on this suicide mission, right? How can we be expected to fulfill, you know, the commandments that God gave us? We can't be expected to go on this kind of suicide mission to just put our lives on the line for this covenantal relationship, for upholding the covenantal relationship. For him, in a way, and very, very um, importantly, the Holocaust is a seminal event. It's an event that shatters. It's a shattering, right? If we looked, remember last time, Josefa, we were looking at Berkowitz and we were looking at Fackenheim and we were looking at a few other philosophers. For some of them, the event was shattering. And for some of them, it wasn't. It was kind of a continuation where we took the same paradigms and just applied them to the Holocaust. For Greenberg, it's shattering. It's a shattering event. Which we also said was interesting, considering the fact that he didn't, himself didn't experience it, meaning he was a second generation and he was reflecting on it afterward. And we also had mentioned that for those who went through the Holocaust, there was a certain functionality and pushing through that was necessary and that Elie Wiesel, right, was one of the first who sort of, as a survivor, broke that kind of silence. Exactly. But that he, reflecting in the Yad Vashem already in Israel, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, was coming at it from a different generation. And also for him, it was Dafka shattering, even though he wasn't the one who experienced it firsthand. So he definitely goes through an existential crisis. He, in, almost in every account that he speaks about the Holocaust, he speaks about the, ni- the year 1961 as that um, transformative moment where he leaves America and that I think is super important. He kind of leaves that progressive, pragmatic kind of um, uh, environment and he, and he goes to Israel where for the, even though he had family that had gone through the Holocaust, his parents very, very rarely spoke about it. And he comes to America in 1961 and he's interestingly invited to the Eichmann trials and he, he resists. He says, no, you know what? I, I'll listen to it on the radio. And when he goes to Yad Vashem for the first time, he is exposed to things he never knew before about the Holocaust. And he talks about it being absolutely shattering. He speaks about the fact that he was putting on his tefillin in the morning and he couldn't bring himself to say the words of the tefillah because it was such a theologically shattering moment to be exposed to everything that had happened in the Holocaust. And when he returns the year after to America, it takes him almost two decades to actually express that shattering in theological terminology. But when he does, he speaks about it in terms of God breaking his covenant with the people of Israel. And that's very um, radical. Now, he since then has revised it, but I just want to for a second, I, I, I want to leave the revision for a minute and I want to look at what he speaks about because I think it's really important for us to understand. He speaks about this idea that God, a covenantal relationship means that God is meant to protect us. And in the Holocaust, he doesn't protect us. And therefore, to a degree, he's broken that covenantal relationship. However, and here he kind of draws on Fackenheim. And by the way, the relationship between Fackenheim and Greenberg, they had a, they had a, had a friendship. And Fackenheim actually attributes some of his theological thinking to Greenberg. Most people think it's the other way around, but it isn't which is really, mm-hmm. really fascinating. In one of his books, he, he dedicates to, to Greenberg's thinking. But Fackenheim also, if you remember, he looks at the people and he says, well, hold on a minute. Look how they're continuing the covenant, even though they don't need to. Greenberg says something similar. He talks about this period. He looks at it from a more religious perspective than Fackenheim. But he speaks about the idea that in this period after the Holocaust, the people have continued to step up and with and uphold their covenantal duties. And what he talks about is this is the period of what he calls the voluntary covenant. 
that the people are volunteering this time. They're not coerced. They're not feeling that they have to, but they're voluntarily taking up the covenant. Which is significant also, Tanya, because he speaks about the covenant having three stages, right? Exactly. That the first the first stage is the biblical period where God is almost domineering, right? And, and extremely present and intervenes in very overt ways. And then he speaks about this part I really actually, by the way, found extremely meaningful, where he speaks about the rabbinic period. Yeah. That the covenant had to be completely revised yeah. when we were living in a, in a period without the temple. And we were living in a period where we had to re-envision our self-limits living in a, in a, in an exiled existence. And, and that's a period where you obviously have, and he brings a number of passages from the Talmud where we want to bring God in in an almost intervening way, but Loba Shemaimi, right? The Torah is meant to be here. And we almost, in the, in the small ways that God can be overtly present in the biblical way, he almost gets pushed out of the picture. Exactly. And the rabbis maintain their sovereignty. They maintain their role, their leadership role. And then he moves on to the third stage. Which he says, in modernity, we, we got close in the beginning with the Enlightenment, where again, God's role was being re-envisioned in our lives. Yeah, but I just want to stop you a second, because yeah. in the third stage, it's not so simple. When he talks about, let me just backtrack one sec, because I just want to talk about the rabbinic era. It's so fascinating, because we think, oh, the rabbis were authoritative, but Dafka, what Greenberg shows us is that the, the rabbinic period was massively innovative. They took this idea of Simsum, of God contracting himself from this kind of mystical kind of um, mystical framing, and they apply it to the idea on a very practical way of basically God slowly disappearing, but still being present. In a sense, what the rabbis do is they say the cover, and this is how Greenberg frames it, the covenantal role has gone through some kind of organic and dynamic change, whereby in the biblical period, God was the main authoritative figure, and we were kind of more passive. In the rabbinic era, the rabbis frame it in a sense that we have become almost on par as a covenantal partner with God, and we've taken up a far greater role in the covenant. God has contracted himself in order and this is the key this is this is what he wants us to understand this is how it's meant to be it's ideal the ideal way is that we as human beings take on a greater role in the covenant during the rabbinic period and then as yourself you said there's the third period and he originally argues that the trigger for the third period is the holocaust and the holocaust shows us that we as human beings have to take on an even greater role as time goes on he recognizes that this actually began exactly as you said with the onset of enlightenment emancipation and modernity where we basically humanity is given the tools to grow up in a sense even more and become what he calls the managing partner in the covenant that our greatest dignity as human beings you know is to be but Kim, and the greatest part of that is to be free is to have autonomy over ourselves and that is what the modern period gave us and in a sense what happens then is God contracts himself even further, right? And we become an even greater partner, whereby we become what he calls the senior partners in the covenant. Uh, I think that's a, I really love that metaphor, by the way, um, imagining a law firm, right? A law firm where you first have someone who is, you know, working a million, million hours in the beginning <laughs> uh, and the, the people over them are very dominant in their lives. And obviously, as you, you know, go up in the totem pole, your level of responsibility becomes greater uh, and your also ability to make independent decisions becomes greater, right? You, you learn to intuit. It's also, it's not getting rid of God. It's that the more that God becomes part of who we are as humans, that we are able to intuit godly decisions. Exactly. So I would actually use a different paradigm, which Greenberg uses very often, and that's the idea of a parent and a child, that when a child is younger, and we've spoken about this in the past. Yeah, we spoke about this in the last episode, yeah. Yeah, in the last episode, when the, when the child is younger, the parent has to be present. But actually, the child hasn't, as you said, intuited all the parents' values, et cetera, et cetera. As the child grows up, the parent is not next to the child in a physical sense, but is living within that child. And I think that's really um, what, what Greenberg's saying here is that God is actually more present now, even than he was in the biblical period. It's just that the presence, his presence now is different to his presence. It's inside of us. Right. It's inside of us. It's not external to us. It's inside of us. And exactly. And right. So that, that leaves God in the picture, even though God is essentially 
becoming more muted in, in the broader picture. It just, it, re, it, re, it refashions. Totally. And it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, you know, God doesn't exist, which is exactly what happens. You see Nietzsche, right? The death of God and all the yeah. philosophers, um, Kant, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need any kind of authoritative metaphysical being to give us law and morality. It can all come from within. And Dafka, that's exactly what Greenberg says. Yes, it can come from within, but we have to sense God's presence even when he isn't manifest in the same way he was in the biblical period. I just, uh, Yosef, I wanted to just read a very, very short um, quote from Greenberg. Um, for those of you, by the way, who are interested in his thought, there's many articles on his website. We're, we're going to link them in the, in the episode notes, so they'll be there. So let me just read a very short quote. Um, he says like this, God is no longer dictating from heaven through the prophets, but speaks to us through human analysis and multiple interpretations. Wherever we are, sharing our pain and our joy, God gives humans greater authority and responsibility to carry out the covenant, right? So in a sense, what he's saying is in the third stage. Well, that's in the second stage he's speaking about that. That was the second stage, right? He yeah. describes that as the rabbinic stage, but I would say even more so in the third stage, right? Because in the rabbinic stage we have, right? The Talmud is all about multiple interpretations and the authority to carry out the covenant. As you said, Loba he right? In the story of Tanosha Lechnai, in the, like as in there's so many examples in the Talmud where we're basically saying the authority now r- lies with the rabbis. But the third stage, and, and this is where um, Rav Yitz gets slightly radical, because he calls the third stage the lay period or the lay leadership. And what he says is that in the third stage, it's no longer the rabbis who have the authority to tell us what to do or to direct and channel us, but the authority lies with the lay person, with every person in their own home, every person in their own mind, in their own heart. And in that period, we're given total, full responsibility for tikkun olam, right? God stays close. He's with us. He's sustaining us. But there's no magical intervention. There's no, what's happening is that God is operating through human agency. And the agency of humanity no longer is with God, like in the biblical stage. And it's no longer with the rabbis, like in the rabbinic stage. It's with each and every one of us. And, you know, Yosefa, you know, there is, there's no question that this is a, is a slightly controversial idea. Yeah, it's very obvious how this can go into directions that are, that are uh, halakhically right. borderline. Yeah. I understand. And even more so when he speaks about, which I don't want to get into here, but he speaks about the idea of holy secularity, where the secular and religious divide is smaller than it ever was before. And he talks about the idea that even totally non-religious people are doing secular work in in building the state of Israel in high tech and all the various other things. And he really looks at it through the prism of tikkun, of, you know, tikkun olam, of of healing the world, etc. But I do want to say one thing that that I found I find very profound um, is that that if you look at it empirically, there's really there's some things that really ring true. If we look at how much in the past, and I would talk him more about the Dati Lumi world, kind of the modern Orthodox, you know, um, world, where in the past we would far more look to rabbinic authority if we had a question or any kind of question, we would straight away go and ask our rabbi. And if we look at how many people now, you know, just people who are very learned, women who are becoming Yotzei Halakha, or even women who are just learning far more, are taking halachic authority into their own hands. They're no longer calling up their rabbi. They're going to the books, they're researching it, and they're finding the halachic answers themselves. And I think that there's something, there is a kind of movement from that um, ladder of rabbinic authority down to lay leadership, and not even lay leadership, just the lay person. And I think that's super interesting. Like, the more I think about it, the more I muse on Rav Yitz's ideas. And I have to say that I should have uh, said before that my doctorate is on Rav Yitz's thoughts. So I have been really musing over it for the last four and a half years. (laughs) 
I think that we could, you know, spend many episodes speaking about the democratization of halakha, but I think we'll leave that we'll leave that on the side for now. But I think that that's a very important point. But I want to bring Ravitz back to the pandemic. Okay, I want us to circle back to our topic for today. Yeah, uh, which yeah. he he did speak out. Um, I would say I I felt that throughout the pandemic. There weren't that many Bravinic voices that I felt were really out there that I was hearing in my, you know, little for Amot. Um, but he, he was speaking out during the pandemic. And I want us to, to see one, one idea that he brings and to bring us back to this idea. Yeah. So a hundred percent he was speaking out. I just wanted to, to kind of define what you're saying. There were a lot of rabbinic halakhic responses to the pandemic where people would come out and say, you should get the vaccine. You shouldn't, or you should stay at home and not get, but there were very few theological responses to pandemic. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think that that, by the way, just yourself in terms of what we've been looking at, that we said in the earlier period, there was a lot of rewards and punishment and this prism of cause and effect. We've moved away from that. Yeah, totally. And I think that the fact that there has been so little, and again, here, I'm very much speaking about the more Datilo or me world, not the, not the more Haredi world, but there's been very little theological responses, actually an attestment to the fact that we have moved past that kind of rewards, punishment, cause, effect, um, theological framing to something more peripheral, which is exactly what we've been speaking about, whereby something more personal, meaning that it that no 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 leader really wanted to go out more, there more and, personal, and impose yeah. general meaning, which is exactly what we've been saying this entire time, right? That everybody has to sort of come to it on their own. On the other hand, there were many people, I know people who spoke to me yeah. about it, they felt very bereft. Like I want someone to hold my hand and yeah. And help me. And I just kept thinking to myself that I think they're probably just as lost as we all are. Like meaning, and I think everyone, you know, looks at authority differently depending on how close or far you are from authority. But I just kept thinking, no one knows what to say right now. We're in the middle that no one has enough perspective. It's not like, oh, people who lived 80 years, they had perspective on this from, you know, from 70 years ago. No one had perspective on it. So I just sort of felt like, I don't know, everybody was somewhat confused. But okay, why don't you bring us to, to Rabbi, Rabbi Greenberg? Yeah, I'm going to bring you, I just want to say one thing in terms of you said that they wanted someone to hold their hands. I think that's exactly the point that in the third era, as Greenberg would say, no one is there to hold our hand. In a sense, we have to take that into our own hands. And I think that's exactly what's been going on. And we've seen it having played out exactly as it's played out. But anyway, so this is what, um, this is one thing he says. He, he wrote a few different articles. And he says as follows, the proper human response is to appreciate the greatness of creation and embrace and take part in the cosmic realm while turning to God's presence and closeness to sustain meaning and life in the face of tragedy and plague. In a sense, what he speaks about here is the idea that all, you know, that there's different models of religious understanding. But the version of causal sin or sin and punishment or reward and punishment just with the virus, it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't sit comfortably. It doesn't, it, it just doesn't work in this period. And we're mistaken if, if we're able to, or if we do do that. And instead, what we really need to be doing, and this is what he kept um, honing in, is that uh, the, the vital religious response, right, is to uphold the covenantal process, as he calls it, right? And, and create world repair and, and kind of deal with the pandemic through scientific research, through doctors, through um, prioritizing research for cures, all of these things. That's the fulfillment of our covenantal role today. Um, epidemiology, all the various things that, that have been going on. You know, it, it reminds me, Tanya, I was speaking to a, a friend, Shuli Mishkin, who I had had on, on the podcast earlier in an earlier season. Yeah. And she had said to me that her current favorite tefillah at that point, we, we met right after people got their first vaccine. And she said that her favorite tefillah at that point was, uh, she was having extra kavanah, that, that God gives yeah. uh, wisdom and knowledge to, to humans. So she said that this is a time where my tefillah hasn't been God save me and, you know, save us all from the burning building, but has please give wisdom to all these physicians who are, and researchers who are trying to, you know, find a, a, a vaccine and try and alleviate the suffering of the world. And I think that that's exactly what Rabbi Greenberg would 
would say here, right? We need to create that. That's the partnership. The partnership is to, is to you, is to turn to God for closeness and for meaning and, and understand that we have to put ourselves in between that, meaning humans have to partner with God in order to create that. Uh, so essentially, again, we've brought you just sort of some sound bites of Rabbi Greenberg's thought, both his post-Holocaust theology and uh, from the number of articles he wrote in the past two years. But he sort of really reinforces an idea that we've been seeing up until now of this idea of that we also saw within Chazal of moving away from the why question. It's just not, it's not, a helpful way to think, Rabbi Greenberg would say it's covenantally inappropriate. It's a covenantally inappropriate question to ask at this point in history, which I think takes it like a step further. It's not just, you know, Tanya and Nosefa having conversation and trying to, you know, mine our different theologies, but he was saying it's just not, it's not the right question to ask anymore. And, uh, but really, we want the what question. What, what do we do from here? How do we, how do we move forward? What meaning do we make it from it? Right. So a hundred percent, I think what he would say is that it's just, it's just not congenial to, to, to the third era. It just, it, it's not an appropriate question to ask anymore. And we felt how inappropriate it was when you talk about a plague, meaning it's one thing to say somebody got, somebody got cancer, you know, somebody died in a car accident, which are like these individual events where people always kind of wonder in their minds, right? Like if, if they're the observer or the child or whoever it is of, was there something that caused that? Was there a, a theological basis for it? If they think like that, when it comes to the world suffering and people literally just falling in the streets from a virus, you know, it, it's, it's just a, you, you feel the absurdity of the question at a mass scale in a way that I think at an individual scale, we might feel less sometimes, but certainly when it's at such mass scale of suffering, people don't think that. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I, I think Dafka. The, I think you feel the question. It's like Yishai, we'll bring at the end Yeshai Rebo asking, you know, what should we make from this? Like the question is actually very, very. No, what we make from it, but now why is it happening? Right, right. I think what the absurdity is the is that's what I meant. The why, the answer. why question yeah, is absurd. The why? Not the meaning right, question. The meaning right. question is what we're left with. Right. I agree with you. Right, exactly. The why question is 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 almost inappropriate. Right. And and I think um, I just it was interesting because immediately after very, very soon after, in fact, the virus happened, I saw a book by um, the French public intellect, uh, Bernard Henry Levy, and he he wrote a book called The Virus in the Age of Madness. And it was it was published. um, I'm just looking 2020. It was published, you know, quite a few months after the pandemic um, started. And I remember I ordered it and I started reading it. I had no idea. But he had started writing it before. Explain this to me. He started writing it. No, no, no he wrote he it didn't during, start writing during the plague, before. right? He, he wrote the plague, it. The virus. Yeah, he wrote it during the, <laughs> he wrote it. Yeah. yeah, it's a modern day plague. He wrote it during the virus. Um, I don't know exactly when in 2020 it was published. Okay. I imagine towards the end of 2020. Yeah. I can't remember exactly when I got it, but I was just, I saw it and I thought, you know what, let's, let's have a read. And I ordered it and I, it was really fascinating book. It's called, it was called the virus in the age of madness. And in a sense, what he does is he negates the, um, he negates the journey or the, um, the me- the need, right. To impose generic universal meaning on this virus, on this plague, as you will call it, right? And he essentially answers that it's arbitrary, that the plague is an arbitrary thing. And any meaning that we impose on it is also totally arbitrary. Like the plague is just the plague. Uh, the virus is just a virus. Like there's nothing, you know, any, all of this kind of religious meaning or um, people saying we've, this is what we've done to the environment and this is the ecosystem, etc. He totally and utterly um, rejects any of those things. And I, I'm just going to read you a very kind of one thing that he says that I think um, reflects and echoes the general sentiment of the book. He says like this, he says, I will repeat first that viruses are dumb. They are blind. They are not here to tell us their stories or to relay the stories of humanity's bad shepherds. And consequently, there is no good use, no societal lesson, no last judgment to be expected from a pandemic. Nothing to be drawn from it except simple 
unemotional observations on the state of the health system, for example, and the fact that we never spend enough anywhere for research teams or hospitals. In a sense, what he says is we can can, um, elicit practical or pragmatic lessons, but we cannot elicit theological lessons because a pandemic or a virus is just that. Um, so that's one extreme view, that basically it's totally arbitrary. And then there's another view that came out during the pandemic, um, and that's the view of radical theism. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about there, Yosefa? Yeah, well, that's, we spoke a little bit about that also in, in an earlier episode, I believe. Right. Right, which basically says what? So radical theism would be, and by the way, not specific to Judaism, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a blaming. No, it's a, it's a blaming situation. Right. Right. Many, many. And we've heard these voices coming out from many different religious um, extremities. Um, the idea that the plague is a um, punishment for not being modest enough and therefore we have to cover our faces now or speaking badly and therefore we have to put masks on um, or humanity's inability to take responsibility for God's world. Okay, all of those um, more theological responses that sit in the position of exactly as you said, right, of blame and shame and sin and punishment. Um, now, again, there, even within, and I would say even within not necessarily radical positions, but we've heard even from um, secular or atheist positions very much, which is, which is ironic to a degree, um, very much the blame and the shame. Okay. If, if we had looked after our ecosystem better, then this would never have happened. Um, if we didn't eat animals, then this would never have happened. Okay. And again, we could, where, where does a natural cause and effect stop and a theological blaming start? And I think it's a very, very thin line, um, Yosefa, which is why I would be, I think we have to be super careful when we impose generic meaning structures on to a current reality. Right. But I mean, I don't think that we're in, and certainly in our conversations, we're not trying to impose generic meaning. We're trying to impose, I would say, individual meaning. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've been talking about. Yeah. I think that things become generic when they become generalized. And uh, we could say that, you know, COVID came here and reminded us that we all maybe think that connection through screens are going to, you know, be almost the same as regular human connection. And then comes comes Corona and reminds us that really human connection can't be replaced. We we can talk about some broader broader ideas. But I think that whenever we run the general, we run we run along the lines of something that is generic and sometimes that could be sort of trite for many people. Totally. And I think, again, what you just said in terms of the human connection, et cetera, et cetera, I, again, what I think is that when we're speaking about it from a personal perspective, when we're imposing meaning for ourselves, when we're saying um, my suffering or my experience of the pandemic has led me to realize that X, Y, Z for myself is very different than saying that God brought down this pandemic in order for us to X, Y, Z. Now, again, in a sense, it sounds like hermeneutic quibble, what we're talking about. But actually, I think there's a very deep difference between those two things. And I think this is exactly what we've been talking about throughout the last four episodes. When it comes to suffering, there's a very big difference of someone coming and applying a generic meaning for everybody or for you and your suffering and saying it's because God is doing this and that, as opposed to someone bringing meaning for themselves. And we're going to talk about this as we go on today. I wanted to just bring in perhaps like a third um, perspective. And that comes from, again, very applicable, written almost 50, 60 years ago. It was written straight after the Second World War, um, Camus' The Plague. And there he talks, again, it's about this a story about a plague that hits a city. And in, in The Plague, we see it from the perspective of the doctor who's trying to, you know, ease the suffering and help people through it. And there's different, various different um, guises of the way people respond to the plague. And one of them is the pastor who comes after 
death of a child and he tries to explain it through God's punishment or God trying to impose meaning, etc., etc. And the main character, who's the doctor, Rhea, he's angered by the pastor's, pastor's classic theodicy, classic of explaining or justifying, um, you know, the death of a child or suffering and a plague in that way. And he responds and he says, the only way to fight a plague or fight the plague is with decency. And he says, the only job I have, the only job we all have is to to heal, is to heal and to be active and to find ways to ease the suffering of another person. And if you remember, one of the litmus tests we started at right at the beginning when we talked about how do we speak about suffering? How do we speak about evil? How do we speak about um, personal um, adversity? We said that perhaps one of the litmus tests when we're talking to somebody, somebody else who's suffering is to ask, does my response ease their suffering? Or does it make it worse? And I think when I read the Camus, the plague, which again, I read also very soon after um, the pandemic started, what I realized is that what the doctor, the main character is trying to do is to say to us or to say to all the other characters in the book, right, rather than looking for answers, rather than trying to impose meaning at that moment of great, great suffering, let's just try in the best human way possible that we have to ease the suffering of the other. That is the only job that we have as human beings today. And this works very well also with what Greenberg is saying in terms of the third era. In the third era, nothing is clear. It's not like the biblical era where God came down, told us all through himself, all through prophets, why we're suffering. There was cause, there was effect. There was even the paradigm of sin and punishment because that's what we needed at the time as human beings. Yeah, no, I, I think that a big difference between those obviously is where God places in them. Yeah. Uh, I think that we're, we're sort of circling around the same point, but I don't think uh, that Camus' philosophical response, which is being guised through a novel, is is placing God there, meaning it's about human decency. It's not about totally. the theological space that we occupy as observant Jews. So I think that that's a response yeah. that can be incorporated into a theological perspective that I think many of us observant Jews are trying to to inhabit in, in our life. A hundred percent. Let's not forget that Camus was an existentialist. Correct. And essentially what he was trying to do was to say, we live in a world without any meaning. What is the only meaning we can impose? And he answers the only meaning we can impose is the meaning of, good people. Healing, of healing the world yeah. and being good people and, and taking action. But I agree with you, Yosefa, but I think it can be used yeah. as a, a very good um, basis on which to build in the third era, if we're using um, Greenberg's language or Greenberg's vision, um, the human response to the pandemic today. Yeah, and you know, I want to also circle us uh, back to, to David Kessler. Yeah. His most recent book is Finding Meaning. And his book is really about grief uh, and loss. And he who co-researched and co-wrote with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross decades ago, uh, when she sort of made the five stages of, uh, of death and also afterwards of, of grief, uh, famous uh, within the world. But the point is that in, in Kessler's research and in this book that he puts out, which is really excellent, he talks about the sixth stage of meaning, and he himself is quite familiar with, with loss and suffering in his own life. Uh, and and he talks about the meaning stage. And the truth is, is that Tanya, I really wanted to, and there's so many, I really recommend really anybody listening to this podcast to read that book. It's a very easy read. Uh, I think it's really helpful for anybody who's gone through specific loss in their life. And I think it's also really informative for people who are experiencing or witnessing other people's loss in their life, which is basically every human on the planet. Uh, and I think it's really helpful in helping people, giving them language, helping them learn how to speak and speak more sensitively to others. Yosef, I just wanted to say the only thing that I would add is that the five stages that you spoke about, I think depression and denial and anger and all of those things that come with it, um, it takes time. And I think we're still in the pandemic. Yes. Um, and I think in a sense, what Kessler perhaps would say to us is, you know, to, to find, to get to that final stage that he speaks about of um, finding meaning. And by the way, he says it can come at any time, yeah. meaning sometimes it comes at the beginning and sometimes it comes at and there's it, it, it's not um it's not linear it's, it's not, not linear, linear but he it's does not say linear. you have to go through a number of the other you can't be in a fresh loss and yeah. find meaning and he yeah, says yeah, if you yeah, found 100%. meaning very soon after your loss he said you will have to revisit that meaning later on because it's not coming at a psychologically healthy space a hundred percent and by the way that 
adds into the people, the theological responses that came immediately after the yeah. pandemic saying to us, it's for this reason and that reason. It, it needs yeah. time. It requires space. It, it needs that makom that we spoke about, that mm-hmm. space in order to, to, to find that meaning. But that's exactly what I'm trying to say. I think that for all of us, we're still in it. We're, it's still so raw. And perhaps meaning and personal meaning comes with time. So I, I just wanted to add that in because I think it's super important for us at this stage to, to yeah. recognize that. No, I totally hear that. The truth is that Tanya, as we, as we start to wind down the episode, I kind of wanted to ask, uh, to ask you if you have been able to make any meaning theologic or otherwise, uh, from the past two years, you know, you can share as personal or not as you'd like, but I'm curious and I'll also share afterward what what do you feel that you've been able to take out of of this period that's a really it's a really tough question because i think at every stage there was something different that was kind of um moving around my head um i mean for 7 years prior to the pandemic my mom was going through um her cancer journey and we were thrown into a lot of chaos and a lot of uncertainty and I think in a sense and and during it unfortunately my father passed away very suddenly and and I think that in a sense that gave me the tools for coping and dealing with this sense of uncertainty of contingency that I really learned things about myself that I definitely had not known before um i always kind of it reminds me very much of jordan peterson jordan peterson who american intellect writer he speaks about the idea of order and chaos and in a sense the human um tendency towards order and away from chaos but the fact that to a degree creativity and many good things comes from being in a stage or in a sense in an area or in a space of chaos and that as humans we have to straddle that kind of dialectical tension between order and chaos and I feel like for me personally I, I had to keep reminding myself of that message that that creativity comes or can come um from moments of chaos i remember <laughs> i actually wrote this article about kohela uh, in the time of corona when there isn't a time to everything and i spoke about this idea of how i would never i was writing at the time of corona i had been through all everything i've been through with my mom and various other things and ian's work my husband's a surgeon and he was going to the hospital coming back and stripping down not coming into the house and there was a lot of fear uh, managing the the fear of him bringing something home from the hospital, managing the fear of the kids, managing my fear, our fear. And I remember sitting there, right, thinking to myself, how am I going to write my doctorate? How am I going to be able to find that headspace that I had never been able to do without going to a library and closing myself off and being opposite the computer? And you know what? I did it. I absolutely managed whilst trying to you know, create plasticine frogs and help Zooms go on with the kids upstairs. And I managed between all of that still to find a sense of creativity. And I think for me, that was on a very personal level, Yosefa, I think that was like that greatest moment of embracing the non-perfection of reality. Like just saying, I'm not perfect. What I write is not going to be perfect. My parenting at the moment is not going to be perfect. Um, nothing is perfect about this reality, but you know what? It's like, reminds me of that option B in um, Sheryl Sheryl Sandberg's book, right? That reality is very often in most occasions, option B. And the question is, can we grow out of that? Can we create something out of that option B reality? And, and, and you know what? I did, and we did, and we all grew. And I'm not going to say that there aren't scars, and I'm not going to say that we aren't, we're not all still suffering in some way or another. But and and I'm not going to say it was for the best because I would much prefer that the pandemic did not happen. Oh, well, that's <laughs> finding meaning. Finding meaning is saying I, I don't wish that it happened, but what do I do with it now that it's here? Yeah, exactly. I don't wish it happened, but the question is, what came out of it? And I have to say that I look, I look at my kids, and I look at myself, and I say we all grew in ways that 
you know, I don't think I would have expected happen. You know, it was really funny, Yosefa, yeah. actually thinking about it. We went, it's my daughter's bar mitzvah, and we went to do a photo shoot on Friday. And we planned it to be like, you know, just before Shabbat, it was like at three o'clock, Shabbat was in at 5.30, and we'd like planned it. And we went to the beach. We we're going to do it on the beach because my third who's bar mitzvah is she loves the beach, and she loves the sea, and she's into gymnastics. She loves moving around. So we went to the beach, and it was the worst photo like situation ever the wind was blowing the light was terrible it was awful and the 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 photographer who was great um said you know what I'm going to take a few pictures of her doing gymnastics but we have to move to a different location and we did it we all moved and four daughters who are all you know I need to look good I want to look this I want everyone just Zorem, like even Ian and I, who can get super stressed about these <laughs> situations, and it was like Shabbat was coming, and everyone just did it, and we just moved location, and we all, and and talking, this is such a mundane thing, but I'm just saying, I actually looked at my kids and I said, you know what, Corona's taught us, like we don't need to stress the small things, like it was, it was totally fine. Yeah, the energy was not great at the beginning, but we all got into it, and we all got back into it, and no one, very few of them were like complete, and it was just, it just did. We just did it and it's just a small example but I feel like all of my kids have learned to just be more chilled about things that don't work out the way that they want them to work out Mm -hmm. and I just think like again do I wish the pandemic happened for us to learn that no do I think that's the reason the pandemic happened no but did we grow and learn something from it yes interesting so so I would say for all of us that that I I think I'm happy that I asked you first I'm going to be the Debbie Downer of this, <laughs> this part of the conversation. Yeah, go ahead. You know, you, listen, both of us, people identify with all of us because we've all had positive Of course, like, no, I'm I, saying- we'll, we'll bring, that's why I'm so happy we're two people bringing, bringing voices that fit together and also are, are slightly different. Oh, Corona. I, I think, <laughs> look, I, I'll say, we, we also have kids. Right, which is wait, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. So, I, I'll tell you what happened is that not only does everyone experience the Corona period, which some people are still feel that it's their present. I don't feel that it's my present as much anymore. Um, but everybody experienced it differently because every, it met everybody's life in a different place. So I, I, it is important for me to say that when I reflect on our, you know, my personal feelings about, you know, the pandemic is that in a small way it met us in a in a place that was helpful but in most of the ways it met us in a place that was so destructive because we had moved to the south uh, and we knew we weren't staying and we had had an extremely extremely hard time uh, and i my husband was also traveling every day to Yerushalayim uh, for that last year and a half and and I had to give birth and I ended up giving birth in the beginning of the first lockdown. And I, I was so grateful. I'm largely not uh, an anxious person. Um, there are some scenarios that make me, uh, that do, definitely get me, but the, the, I never, we were never in fear so much from the actual virus. So I know that for many people, that was a very strong fear of theirs. That wasn't where it hit us at all. Uh, and not because of some, you know, irresponsible perspective of our health, but simply it just wasn't, we weren't, we were working in a very sort of rational place. And, and from the beginning, we just, it didn't, it didn't hit us in an anxious way. That's not how my husband and I react to these kinds of things. And, but we were, aching and i mean aching for routine and before corona hit and aching to move and and get to a place that was healthier for us in our living situation uh and where we weren't going to feel so alone and so corona not even the first few months but the whole continuation of it last year especially was so so unhelpful um also i know my you know my husband also ended up losing his job in the first part of it and then and then it took him a long time to find a new job when we moved uh, afterward to gushetzion and there was just so much uncertainty that was the pandemic was was kivichol the cause of it or it was a big part of it but it sort of piggybacked on on our 
on our sort of chaos that we had because of our life, we had moved and we moved to a place that wasn't fitting for us. So on one hand, in the first few months, it was great to be in Yerucham because we had a big backyard and there aren't a lot of people around to begin with. So we weren't like scared that we were going to be exposed to people, meaning that whole, and, and Corona never even, didn't even come to Yerucham until we had already moved out. Like there weren't even any people that really had, were sick in any, any big numbers. Um, so in the beginning, Yerucham was actually a great place to be, but from a social a financial professional perspective last year was disastrous. Um, and, and also, as you said, my kids are in a different stage of life. My eldest then was eight and I had a new baby. There were four girls also. And it was, it was just utter chaos. Uh, it was horrible for my parenting. Uh, it was that we were living in a small apartment, um, and we moved into an apartment that was smaller when we moved to Gush Etzion. And you know, it, I literally had nowhere to go throughout the day, uh, and it it was terrible. It was really, really horrible. Again, not from the health perspective. But from every other perspective, it made me also being able to find work and start a, a new normal life routine really impossible. Everything was just delayed by a year plus. Um, and, uh, you know, were the good things about it? My baby was home for 11 months before she went to any daycare. Uh, there were a few good things, but the emotional reality was, I would say, pretty excruciating. But what I will say is that I agree with you in the fact that um, the years that preceded Corona also, for me, it was just a time of a lack of healthy space, a lack of any sort of normative boundaries. I didn't see my family for almost two years at a time, which again, also that I'll swing back to this point about how universal suffering, but everybody experiences it so differently. Uh, I think that people who are Olim felt that very acutely. My my mother also hadn't been here for seven months before Corona. And so it made the that period of time just extremely extremely long uh and you know she didn't see my children for for two years nobody met the baby until she was a year and a half old i mean there were some you know wacky really wacky things that happened as a result um and i i guess if i'll be honest i feel now that i'm i've really started to recover from all of the oh and one other thing i'll say and this relates to the age of kids is that i also felt that for a year plus we we did kivud avm and we put all of the elderly at the front but i felt that there was a 6 month period where we could have been much more considerate of young children and the parents who parent them but that for an extra 6 months that was not done and those were 6 months that i think were extremely destructive for people in my age bracket, uh, where people had already two vaccines, but there was still another lockdown and there were still schools that were barely open. And again, everybody could, uh, has their own opinions health wise, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there were a lot of programs that could have already been done then that weren't put into practice. And I felt that while I'm not his biggest supporter in the world, that it wasn't, it wasn't a happenstance that when somebody became prime minister in our country who also has school aged children, that he said there will be no schools being shut down again. And I just felt that it was, it was hard that that didn't happen six months earlier when it could have. Uh, so that was something also I just felt like as a parent, you know, in my in my 30s with young children, it doesn't matter your age bracket, but a lot of us were in that, are in that age bracket that I felt that we were kind of invisible for a long time. And we also weren't the people who at any time or mental or emotional space to go out and protest because we were busy trying to keep our lives in some semblance of together. So I also at a certain point got angry. If you could talk about stages of grief, I definitely had anger in there. Yeah. So, but I will say that Tanya, I'm not in a meeting place yet. I I'm still recovering. I think also it's taking me a while for my parenting to recover. I had just a lot of negative feelings that I felt came out in the direction of my children. There was so much together time, which again, like in the first few months was cute and then it became uncute. Uh, and so I feel that I'm sort of like rebuilding up my parenting stamina. And I think there were a lot of, a lot of marriages also that went through very, very tough seasons during this time for all the obvious reasons. And so I feel that I'm recovering. I'm happy that the days when I wake up and I have had a week of routine and it's like literally the most blessed thing. And I, and I got a job and, and that's, Amazing. Um, but I definitely 
I'm not in a place yet where I'm even interested in finding meaning in the in the pandemic. I for me it was a massive <laughs> nuisance in our life that caused a lot of damage that we're yeah, still recovering from. So I think that maybe over time I'll be able to to find meaning in it. And certainly there are things that were that were learned, but for me if I'm speaking just about me personally not about, you know, humanity as a whole, yeah. um um the jury's still out for me on the meaning piece. So I think that's interesting. I think as you said um, the uh, and uh, the fa- the what question you know what can we take from it is something that happens at different stages for different people um, but I but I want to just swing back to the theological dilemma which is where we started um, where we started the whole podcast and I and I want to just ask you know we've looked when we're talking about the pandemic we began with Yitz Greenberg and we spoke about the idea of the three different eras that we're living in that perhaps maybe this era is the era of modernity the era of the lay people where god is super hidden um in a physical way but maybe super close in a spiritual way um and that perhaps one of the things that we need to do is to take the greatest amount of responsibility we looked at you know bernard henry levy who speaks about this idea of the arbitrariness of the plague we spoke about um radical theism that says no this plague is a the reason for this plague is because we haven't done what we need to do, X, Y, Z, blame and shame. And then we spoke about Camus and the idea of, you know, perhaps it's arbitrary, but that doesn't mean we can't impose some kind of meaning by taking responsible human action and healing those in the image of God, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we spoke about David Kessler and I, I and, and we spoke about both of our experiences where we've, you know, kind of, you said, I'm not ready to Im- impose any not even to ask the what question and kind of I'm in my still in my anger a bit I'm still in my grief I'm still in what I've lost um and I said you know what I definitely feel like there's lessons that I've learned um for myself about myself about my kids about um our family life and and perhaps about our resilience um and again not saying anything universal generic about the plague but about the plague about the the pandemic but but on a very personal level but I really would like to bring in, I know we brought him in before, um, but I want to bring him in again. Um, it was, it was his yacht site uh, last week, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Sachs. And he, you know, for me, the, the one thing I found so profound about him is that he was a philosopher. He was a thinker. He spent his days, his life immersed in thought and philosophy and questions. And yet when it came to the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, he, it, there was no question for him. It was almost as if he just felt at peace um, with the question. And the one thing he kept saying was that he, he brought us back to that Midrash that talks about Moshe asking to see God's face and Hashem refusing. And he says that Perhaps one of the reasons that Hashem refused to show Moshe his face, meaning to show him the clarity and the meaning and the black and white answers of everything that happens in this world is because the minute he would show him the answer, Moshe would not feel that imperative to fix the world, that imperative of Tikkun Olam. And that may be one of the things that we have to reflect on when we speak about the problem of evil. And when we speak about suffering and grief and pandemics and personal suffering and illness and all those various other things that we see day in, day out, that perennial human problem of why good people suffer and why there's grief and evil in the world, is that perhaps we have to say that the reason we don't have an answer and the reason we don't impose you know, one-dimensional answers perhaps and blaming and shaming on these enormous questions is because when we do, we, we kind of um, take away our responsibility to act. We no longer um, have a, a religious um, imperative to heal the suffering, because we say, like Job's friends, you must have done something to deserve this. And instead, says Rabbi Sachs, what we have to do is we have to say, I don't know why this has happened. And I don't understand God's ways. But I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to reflect on why this is happening. And I'm going to say that my job is to try somehow in some small way 
to ease the suffering, whether that be through helping the other, whether that be through simply sitting with the other in their grief, whether that be through research, R&D of medicine and and cures, etc. When we're talking about the pandemic, whether that be through looking for um, various ways to ease, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever it is, all these different responses, that's what allows us to answer not the why question that we always said, but the what question, as Rav Soloveitchik, we said last time, right? We don't, we can't ask the why, we have to ask the what. I want to just uh, close the conversation um, by circling back to the opening of this uh, of this episode, and where we sort of presented universal suffering and individual suffering. Uh, are they somewhat different? Uh, are they really uh, very similar? Uh, and I think that what we've come out with throughout this episode is that uh, they're really they're really not that. Uh, different. Uh, that suffering is a universal experience that everybody everybody goes through, um, and that we do have to recognize, though, that while we're all going through a, a in this case with Corona related universal experience, everybody's experiencing it very differently. And I think that that could be that has to be applied also for death, right? And all different tragedies that happen. That we recognize that on one hand, it's a comforting. It's supposed to be a comforting thought that these are things that every that people in the world experience. Not everybody in the world, but people in the world experience them. On the other hand, both the witness and the person going through it recognizes or needs to recognize that everybody experiences it differently. Tanya, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having these conversations with you. Um, you know, as uh, colleagues and at this point also friends, to think about these ideas, uh, share sources that have helped give us language uh, and helped us uh, move through these questions uh, while knowing from the outset that there really weren't going to be any clear answers. And my real prayer is that anyone who's listening to these episodes that we've that we've also helped you try and uh, find language that feels right for you or doesn't feel right to you and then that helps you also understand what is right for you um, and and open up different avenues of, uh, of thinking and of feeling I'll just say that if you uh, anyone wants to hear more uh, from me uh, I teach at Matan on Thursday mornings at nine o'clock this uh, first semester I'm teaching uh, biblical poetry through the prism of Shira Shreem and Tehillim and second semester I'll be discussing uh, destruction uh, in the book of Yirmiyahu and Yechezkel uh, and I'll be continuing here on the podcast please God as the year as the year continues and progresses Tanya where can people hear more and read more of you so first I have um, a blog, which um, I update at the moment infrequently, but hopefully will be more frequently. But there's a lot of resources there, a lot of past blogs. That's www.contemplatingtorah.wordpress.com. Um, and I teach at Matan in various branches. Um, they can all be found on the Matan website. You can type in Tanya White. I teach in Renana, um, hybrid also for those who are not near to Renana on a Tuesday mornings at nine on your Seth narratives. I teach in Chashmona Im and I teach in Zichron Yaakov. I also do a study group on Thursdays at Matana's Renana as well. So plenty of opportunities and I'd love to see everyone whoever, whoever wants to reach out. Tanya, it's been a pleasure. I wanted to add a short piece as an epilogue uh, to this series. There were two songs that came out in Israel by two of our leading uh, singers in the general public of Israel. They both happen to be religious. Uh, one by Hanan Ben-Ari and one by Yishai Ribo. And each of their songs that they wrote about Corona, uh, they both came out very, very early on. I think really point to the dichotomy that we've been speaking about or we've been sort of circling throughout these episodes. In the song that is put out by Hanan Ben-Ari, I'm just going to read a a short piece of it and afterward you'll hear it played uh, on the episode. 
Uh, he says the following. He says, You've returned our sanity. We now are able to long for other humans. We are aching with loneliness. We're not traveling anymore, flying to different locations. Um, there are weddings with all, almost no one there. Uh, and he was saying in the world before Corona, we almost lost ourselves. We almost stopped feeling at all. And he's speaking about the over-technologized world and the fact that everything has become digitalized and human contact has become minimalized. And then that became so extreme in the Corona, certainly in the beginning of the Corona period, when nobody was able to be together at all. Uh, and he says, he finishes at the end of this short but really beautiful song, Soon it'll all be over. And I am asking, please, that the morning after you go, Sorry, I'm crying. That, uh, that we won't be the same. And in this song of his, Ishai Chanamanari uh, doesn't refer to God. He doesn't ask any why or big theological questions. He just reflects as a human. And he says that, you know, before Corona, we had lost ourselves. We had lost a bit of our humanity. And Corona has able, has been able to return some of that, to reestablish that humanity for us. And I just hope, I pray that when you are gone, right now we know there's not really a before and after. There's not really a day where Corona won't be there. But in the period where you become less prominent, I hope that we won't revert to our old ways. I hope that we'll retain that appreciation and that love and that longing for humans that we've lost in this digitalized age. The song that Ishai Ribo puts out uh, which they really came out very, very close to one another. He, in his, in his chorus, asks directly the why question. And he says, What do you want us to understand from this? How do we become close and distant? assumingly from God, with this pain. I want to live with you and not to be alone. What do you want us to learn from this? And how will we know to reunite in all this division? Until we'll be able to recrown you with, uh, with a divine crown. And there he's referring to the, uh, to the piyut, to the liturgical prayer that we say on Yom Kippur. And Ishai Rubo in his chorus goes directly at the why question. God, why have you done this? How can I maintain a close relationship with you when I feel that I've been thrust so far away? And these responses, again, none of which I'm presenting as, as correct or incorrect, when they came out, it really, um, it really highlighted it for me, these two different human responses to difficulty. Uh, I don't think that Ishai Rebo was saying that we shouldn't learn from it. He says in the second part of his chorus, you know, what are we supposed to learn from this? But he very clearly directs his questions to God and asks the why question. Whereas Ishai, whereas Hanan Benari really um, pulls back from asking that kind of question. It simply doesn't seem to be what is uh, what interests him. <laughs> So I encourage you to look at those two songs. You can look at them up on YouTube. It'll also be in the show notes as well. And I also want to say here, if anybody is still listening at this point in the recording, that after the fourth episode, after this episode airs, we are going to be having a Facebook live question and response session. And so I encourage you to send us questions um, to our email that you'll hear rolling at the end of, of the credits for today. And we'll, we'll check them out there. You can send them if you have my email or Tanya's email uh, or Matan's general email. You can please send us your questions and we'll be happy to address them in a short Facebook live session that will appear a week after this airs. <laughs>
I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.